All right, we ready? Curry, way down top. Bang! Bang! Oh, what a shot from Curry! Ruben Garrick for the corner. Ankle breaker! KD! And it comes to Moses. That is incredible! LeBron James, a shot in history. He's back! Pull up a chair, everyone, and welcome to episode three of the Amateur Athlete Podcast with Vaughn. Today, we're going a little bit left field, and I'm chatting with physiotherapist Liam Richardson. We're going to be discussing the most common injuries physios tend to come across in the NRL and the NBA, and a little bit of an insight on the rehab process involved. Liam has seen his fair share of injuries from both sports, having treated a number of athletes from the St. George Illawarra Dragons and the Illawarra Hawks. Liam is also a qualified strength and conditioning coach, so we will also dive into the S&C world. All right, let's get into it. Richo, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. Before we get into the pod, can you tell us a bit about yourself and let everyone know of your experiences working with professional athletes? So since finishing up uh, over the years, I've been working in uh, crickets, Aussie rules, rugby union, and then rugby league uh, in the NRL. Uh, at the moment, then working in private practice across a few different codes as well. So, been a good mix and worked with many sports over many different years as well. It's been great. I want to concentrate a little bit on the injury side of things today. I want to talk about two injuries in particular. The first one I want to touch on is the syndesmosis injury. For people listening that don't know, can you tell us what the syndesmosis is, where it's located, and how it functions within the joint? So syndesmosis injury or high ankle sprain is seems to become a bit more common in uh, rugby league over the last you know, 10, 15 years or so. Basically, the difference between uh, that and your standard sort of lateral ankle sprain is that it is higher up uh, within the ankle joint and it also helps to support uh, the ankle joint in a slightly different way. Uh, there is three ligaments that are sort of composed of one sitting at the front one directly in the middle and then one at the back as well. But it helps to support the ankle and provide that structural stability that you need to be able to run. So as we can see in, in league in particular, it's becoming a bit more common uh, with third man in or even as you're getting tackled from behind when you've made a break as well. So they do take longer than a standard ankle injury, which is why you see people having mm-hmm. a longer time off as well. You can't just touch on a little bit. But, you know, when you're watching the footy on the TV, you hear the commentator say, oh, you know, he's done his syndesmosis. I think you just touched on it, but what actually happens to your ankle when you do this injury and how does it differ from any other ankle sprain? So the typical mechanism of it is what we call getting forced in the dorsiflexion. So if you can imagine your toes getting jammed up towards the sky and then rotation externally as well. So basically you're twisting your ankle uh, upwards and depending on which ankle, of course, out towards the side. And so that force going directly up the ankle basically splits the two bones that sit in your shin and that creates uh, a high degree of tension and a high degree of force that the ankle joint's got to try and uh, withstand as well. Uh, the, you know, the typical sort of mechanisms are those you know, getting tackled from behind as you made a break, third man in as well, or even having someone just land directly on your lower shin and having it twisted and forced into that position as well. Are there any, like, signs and symptoms that occur with this injury that people should be aware of if, you know, they've hurt their ankle or rolled their ankle on the field or on the court? 
Yes, yeah, it's a good question. Uh, it's it's tough to obviously diagnose, uh, you know, without qualified professional there. But I guess the big thing you look out for with any ankle injuries are whether or not people can stand or wait there on it immediately. That's generally a pretty good sign as to the severity of it. As in, if you can't do that, then you know, there might be something that's a, a bit more sinister going on. Uh, having tenderness higher up the ankle is is more common as well, rather than having it typically on the outside of the ankle where you know you might see if someone rolls their ankle which is probably a bit more typical in your, in your basketball space but uh, that inability to weight bear is always a big one and then uh, the mechanism of injury is also really important so you know if someone's made a break through the line and they get tackled you're a bit more suspicious of it being a syndesmosis injury or a, a high ankle sprain of some description Whereas if they've just slipped in a, in a small divot in the ground or something like that, or they've landed on someone's uh, foot in basketball or on the court, then you're probably a bit more suspicious of an inversion or a lateral ankle sprain. What about, you know, when, when you see a physio or one I've ever seen one, they say, did it roll in ways, did it roll out ways? What's the difference if it's rolling in ways compared to out ways? Is there, is there a massive difference in, in the way that the injury plays out? Uh, it gives you a really good idea of what structures might be injured. So, you know, if you see that typical sort of injury where it does roll out, you know, you generally get stretching on the outside uh, of the ligaments, which people would, would call it. So that's more your lateral ankle. Mm-hmm. Whereas typically the other way, you're going to be getting either your cinders or your AITFL, um, which is one of the ligaments of the cindersmosis complex, versus like a deltoid ligament as well. So... They're the sorts of things that you just got to keep an eye out on as to the mechanism uh, because it gives you a really good indication of what's immediately happened. And, you know, part of the difficulty with uh, injury management later on, say an injury happens on a Saturday versus being seen on the Monday by a physio, is that swelling occurs, bruising occurs, so it actually ends up masking and can become uh, apparent that it might be a few different structures just because of the amount of swelling that you have as well. So. Mm-hmm. That's why we always recommend trying to get in to see someone as soon as possible mm-hmm. uh, to be able to get an accurate diagnosis because it does potentially become a little bit harder if you leave it mm-hmm. days. With the grading of an injury, so you obviously got, you know, your grade one, your grade two, your grade three. Can we talk about each grade and kind of how the severity is actually diagnosed? So, for example, in your eyes, what is a grade one syndesmosis look like compared to a grade two, grade three? So the severity of it and the grading system can sort of be based on how many structures uh, are involved as well, as well as the severity of that structure that might typically be involved. So it's common to say with the grade one, for example, uh, you know, the whole syndesmosis complex, uh, I guess, like for a bit of a phrase, is that there is three sort of ligaments and structures that it's composed of. So... To put it simplistically, you could say an AI TFL injury, which is the anterior uh, ligament of the front of the complex, would be a grade one. That, along with the syndesmosis injury, so the, the middle portion of the ligaments, grade two, and then grade three is going to be a PI TFL, uh, which is posterior or back of the ankle as well. Mm-hmm. So that can be a really simplistic way to do it. Uh, another way of looking at it would be the severity of the, the tear as well. So... You know, if you've got a, a partial stretching or a strain of a ligament, again, that could be a one versus with a bit more uh, pain and a bit more severity 
you know, on an MRI, it could then be a two versus a complete rupture where it's a three and there's no attachment yeah. starts there as well. Is it is this a rumour or not a rumour, but I've heard grade three, if it's a complete tear, does that sometimes like bring off a bit of the, the tib and fib as well? Yeah, so with that sort of injury, you get like the avulsion where it pulls off a bit of the bone yeah. uh, as part of it, and that can be on any structure. Like that yeah. can happen in a finger, it can happen uh, you know, in the shoulder as well. So there's there's so many different structures where you can end up with a avulsion. Yeah. Uh, in that sort of space, like bone tends to heal better, generally speaking, uh, than ligaments as well. And that's just because you get, as long as it's not huge displacement, but you get good blood flow and you get uh, good supply of nutrients that you need for good healing as well. And obviously bone is a firm structure compared to a ligament. So yeah. Let's say I have a grade two syndesmosis injury that doesn't require surgery. In your opinion, what's the best treatment process for a physio? And what's the recovery time on an injury like that? Obviously, it's going to vary from person to person, but in an ideal world, what's the recovery time? What's kind of a little bit of the, the process with that? Yeah, I always preface this by saying everyone's individual and different, uh, but at the same time, there are some general themes that you follow. So the first and foremost, getting a really accurate diagnosis is the most important thing, obviously. Uh, there's been times where you see people diagnose an ankle injury as just a, a lateral ankle, but it's three weeks later and that person might still be walking. So uh, walking with difficulty, I should say. So you've got to then question, well, this isn't a typical presentation for that sort of injury. Am I missing something? So getting that diagnosis is really important. Obviously, a clinical examination, if you've got the opportunity uh, and you know, people are willing to spend the money in MRI is going to give you a really accurate diagnosis in that space. But first and foremost, why that is important is because then they should be booted uh, almost immediately. Mm. So that booting helps things to stabilise. You know, you're wanting the healing process to occur and reduce the amount of force going through the ankle to allow healing to occur. So that's why putting them in a boot immediately is really important at that stage. Now, depending on how well they're tracking, you could either put them as non-weight-bearing in a boot or partial weight-bearing in a boot, meaning that they can put a little bit of weight through it to get a little bit of loading and a little bit of stimulus for a healing response as well. And then from there, you know, that can be a period of two to three weeks, depending on the severity of it. Then you're starting to progress them out of the boot, get them doing some uh, work in the pool for not only fitness, but some balance work and some strength uh, work on a calf complex and ankle complex to be able to keep everything moving well and then being able to progress with your uh, non-weight bearing strength work so it might be some TheraBand work it might be some very light basic sort of calf uh, press work as well and then working into your weight bearing sort of work as well so you'd be looking at your calf raises your seated your standing your uh, angled calf raises as well to try and mimic what the demands are of the sport too. And this can go over from injury to uh, getting back onto the field. It can be anywhere from four to eight weeks, again, depending on severity, diligence of the person doing their rehab as well. Once you've completed your, your weight-bearing work and they've got good calf strength, so theoretically at week four, you're then progressing into a bit more of your plyometric-based work in preparation for them to be able to run. 
Yeah. Obviously, running is a really high impact activity. Yeah. So you've got to be able to practice absorbing the force, but also being able to exert force to run and meet the demands of whether it's someone playing rugby league, someone on the court, someone playing football as well. As you're going through your progressions, then you're going through your running progressions of you know, generally linear into some potentially some acceleration, some graded change of direction work as well, yep. and then into your sport-specific work too. So they're important to get right uh, first and foremost because they are one of those injuries that if you don't rehab them properly, then your susceptibility is higher as well. Yeah. That was kind of the next question. So like the return to play process can kind of be a little bit difficult to navigate, I guess, depending on the person. Obviously, we can strap up the ankle to give it a bit of stability there. You just kind of ticked off on on that a little bit, but what boxes need to be ticked on the athlete's end when wanting to return to play? Like you said, some linear stuff, then some agility stuff. So what are we talking? Are we talking like, you know, straight line running at 80%? Are we talking, you know, like a, a three by three meter agility box to to get that change of direction movement going? Mm. Yeah, it's, it's a good question. There's, there's obviously so much can go, go into it. Looking at this, particularly around the time of year that it is now, which is finals, there's, there's also, I guess, two streams of thought that, you know, you're trying to get someone back potentially for finals in a quicker time frame versus maybe if the injuries happen at the start of the year. So I guess looking at it now, being able to make sure that, yes, you can run in a linear fashion for a good amount of distance, I guess. So, you know, what that involves would be what you normally do in a game and trying to figure out that as a rough basis as your framework to be able to get back to where you need to have to get to as yeah. well. So theoretically, you might run 3Ks in the game. So what do you need to be able to do prior to getting back to that? Run 3Ks um, yeah. in a sport-specific scenario, I mean, though, rather yeah. than just going for a long three-kilometer run. To then be able to mimic the demands of the sport. So if we're looking at a rugby league athlete, front row, for example, you've got to get up and down off the ground. You've got to be able to... Uh, get back 10 metres repetitively, repeat efforts. You've got to be able to go into a kick chase, go into a wrestle as well. So, you know, once you've ticked off some of your linear running, then you can bring in your uh, elements of sport-specific work, change of direction, whether it is something like a box drill or a diamond drill or just a lateral shuffle or potentially even going into a bit more of those uh, small-sided games to be able to make it a bit more applicable to your sport. Yep. But having really good calf strength, most important, being able to generate that power quickly. So whether uh, the, the medical professionals out there and the athletes out there, you know, sort of working together to be able to get people back to where they want to get to, then using the equipment and devices that you have at your disposal is really important. Yeah, 100%. Let's move on to the ACL. I believe probably this is one of the most feared injuries probably by a sports person. Obviously, with sports such as the NRL and the NBA, both being fast-paced and change direction orientated, which can sometimes be a recipe for disaster. In episode one of the pod, I spoke with, with Dan Greeter of the, of the Illawarra Hawks, who unfortunately tore his ACL twice in the same knee. You know Greeter well, did you have anything to do with the treatment of, of his ACL? Admittedly, it was quite limited. I obviously crossed paths quite a bit, uh, being in the same facility as him, but direct treatment didn't have a huge amount to do with it. But, you know, obviously knowing 
physios that did treat or physio that did treat him uh, quite well as well. We, we had micro conversations about the knee at the time. You know, being fortunate, unfortunate, I've done my ACL as well, so I can relate to a degree yeah. uh, with Greta. Fortunately, I've done it twice. Touch wood. Yep. <laughs> Are you able to explain to anyone who doesn't know what an ACL is and the role it plays in the knee? So the ACL is short for anterior cruciate ligament. And as the name cruciate suggests, it's a very crucial ligament <laughs> within the knee. But basically it's the main stabilizer of your knee joint and it helps to provide rotatory support as well as what we call anterior translation of the, the tibia as well. So it helps to basically keep the tibia or the shin bone more or less in line with the femur as well. So its main role is to stabilise the knee joint, which is why it's such a, uh, when it does get injured, is, is such a devastating injury. But, you know, we can see time and time again that technology is improving, rehab's improving, people are coming back bigger than ever and better than ever uh, post-injury as well to be able to bulletproof their body. ACL injuries, they seem to be coming more common, I guess, in a way. Can you explain why is the ACL so prone to injury? It's a really good question again because it is one of, if not the most devastating injuries. In terms of prevalence, it is appearing to be an injury that's happening more and more. I think, too, that there is probably a larger population that's playing those change of direction sports too, yeah. which is then predisposing uh, people to it as well. Obviously, we can see that uh, sports in males and female participations uh, only on the up. A lot of people are playing sports such as rugby league, basketball is becoming huge in Australia. So it's one of those things that being able to try and do whatever you can and minimise the risk of it, whether it's you know, really good hamstring strengthening, uh, really good trunk and lateral hip strengthening as well to try and minimise your chances is really important. And there's some great technology out there as well uh, for people being able to get back to sport and tick all the boxes to be able to minimise their chance of reoccurrence as well because the unfortunate reality is that once you do an ACL, the susceptibility of further injury is heightened, so you should be trying to do everything you can to minimise that risk. Off the back of that, is it true if you sustain an ACL injury in one knee, you're you're more than likely to suffer it in the other knee? Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> and, you know, the reasons for that is there's so many theories on it. I won't profess to be a ACL expert in any sense of the word, but you can see that the susceptibility for further ACL injuries is heightened and you only need to look at people over the years that have done one, whether they've then re-injured the same one or have subsequently done the other knee. Yep. That's setting proof to the fact that people uh, are at a higher risk of doing it. So you should never rest on your laurels uh, with, with rehab. And what I do find in the setting, particularly in the, in the private settings, that people get to around about that three to six-month mark and because they're functioning at a semi-good level, feels if they can sort of drop off. But to be honest, that's probably the most important time to actually really crack in and do as much as you can from a rehab point of view to be able to minimise the risk of the other knee going. Yeah, for sure. It's pretty scary if you think about it, especially if you're like, right, yes, I finally I've rehabbed 
I'm back to playing and then you come crashing back down with 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 the other needs can be mentally tough on on athletes. Another scenario, I'm playing I'm playing footy, I'm running the ball towards the defensive line. Someone comes in from the side, chops my legs. I come from the field, I'm in a bit of bit of pain in, in my left knee. What are the typical initial signs and symptoms I need to be aware of if I have in fact torn or or injured that ACL ligament? Yeah, it's one of those ones where now that there is more information around it, there's more awareness as well. People can become hyper aware of, of what to look out for. So, you know, I always um always just think that can be you've got to be a little bit cautious in that space. But the the biggest things that we're sort of looking out for is the on-field trainer, physio on the sideline, whoever it might be, is did you hear a sound? So, you know, the classic pop is what people uh, always refer to. Might have been a crack uh, as well that you do hear. Again, not everyone that has heard those things in their knee has injured their ACL, but it's just something that we look out for. The mechanism is always a big thing. So, you know, as you described, that scenario, getting whacked from the side uh, can be one of those mechanisms too. Whether or not you can wait there and uh, whether or not you feel, use the term stable, um, or whether or not you think that your knee is going to give way, they're always big signs. Again, that can occur in people that get injured too, that have a bit of fluid in their knee, and they get these sort of fake, I guess, instability episodes too. But there are probably a couple of the things that you're looking out for as well as potentially any lateral knee joint pain. So whilst that's not the area of the ACL, you can get almost what we call a bit of a kissing injury where you get the impact from the outer part of the thigh and the outer part of the shin bone that collide and that's sort of that mechanism with a little bit of rotation of the knee that predisposes and risks the knee, uh, ACL I should say, to injury too. So they're probably the, the three big things I've kept an eye out for in that instance. Let's say there's no medical professional at a game. You're, let's say I'm playing basketball. I go to change a direction to run back down the, end of the, the other end of the court. I hear a, 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 a snap in, in my knee. What are the initial steps an individual needs to take if there's no medical professional there? Mm. What initial steps they should take before seeing a medical professional? Yeah, in that instance... You might be lying down the court or whatever it might be. Obviously, at that point, you'd remove yourself from the, from the court, uh, see you know, if there's any sort of subsequent swelling that can come on. The, the other big thing I should have mentioned with ACL injury too is typically you do present with severe pain for a few minutes and then all of a sudden, oh, this doesn't feel too bad. And then you try and push it and go back out there again and all of a sudden your knee gives way and that's when subsequent injuries can happen. So... You know, I don't say this to try and instill fear in people or anything like that. It's just more of an awareness that if you initially have that sharp pain and then it subsides, it's probably not a sign for you to still get back out in the court yeah. immediately. At that point, if you've got family or friends that are uh, medical practitioners or allied health, they're, I'm sure, more than willing to be able to help out in that instance. Uh, so giving them a buzz or sending them a text. You know is important and then from there if you are highly suspicious of an acl injury seeing your gp uh, can be worthwhile to be able to start that process of getting uh, an mri as well 
And then from there, getting MRI will then sort of determine, you know, what the next steps are if, if it's proven that your ACL is injured. But the main thing from in between that time space would be icing, compression, you know, being able to get the swelling under control. There's, there's probably a little bit of conjecture around the whole RISA protocol of rest, ice, compression and elevation. In my opinion, swelling is going to be your main limitation as well as pain. We know that ice is really good for, for pain uh, and being able to reduce some of that, that swelling as well to a degree is going to be really important mm-hmm. because you're going to end up with a stiff knee otherwise. Yeah. And some people just end up getting a lot of swelling more than others, whereas I've seen others that have done their ACL literally absolutely no swelling at all. They're walking around fine. They've gone back surfing within a week. Uh, so it can show that there's such a discrepancy between people. Much like most injuries, we have gradings again. Let's say I've completely ruptured my ACL. I've opted to have the surgery. I come in to see you. I'm one to two weeks post-surgery. What is your initial approach to rehab in this early recovery stage or is it too early to kind of start any treatment work that early after surgery? No, nah, getting in straight away is imperative. If we're talking just an isolated ACL injury, the main thing and the really important thing that you've got to focus on as the athlete, but even as the practitioner, is making sure that the person's getting full extension. So what I mean by that is getting your leg fully straight as quickly as possible. That's important because if you don't, you actually get some quad inhibition, which therefore means that you lose more muscle mass Therefore, you're going to have to put in more uh, time and effort to try and regain that muscle mass as well. So to be able to get full extension, they sort of talk about a quiet knee and that being limited swelling, good range of motion and some quad some quad activation for lack of a better term. But yep. the main aim there is to make sure that the knee is fully straight so that people can be able to walk whether it's using compression and ice, all those sorts of things, and just start some walking retraining as well. Yeah, sweet. Briefly, let's talk rehab planning from post-surgery to, to return to play. What goals does an athlete need to achieve before moving on to that next phase of rehab? So initially, what what does stage one involve, just, just briefly? Mm. So that quiet needs to be one. So full extension, some quad activation, Getting some good range of motion uh, with your flexion as well, so being able to bend the knee. doesn't need to be 100%, but being able to get that moving freely. And then just looking at uh, commencing some hamstring strengthening as well is really important. Uh, hamstring is obviously such a big driver of uh, and protector of the ACL as well. So, And a lot of the time your graft site is from... The hamstring can yep. also be from the quad tendon too, so making sure that you've, you've ticked all those boxes early on is really vital. Stage two, are we looking at more strength work in that stage two phase? Yeah, definitely. Being able to build that muscle size to get uh, above average quads is really important. And like then, yourself. <laughs> finally. <laughs> Alex Brass. <laughs> the big Al. Being able to uh, improve that that size as well as that strength of the hammy and calf too is vital. So progressing with whether it's a strength conditioning coach, uh, an exercise physiologist or you know, a physio with a special interest, yep. that side of things is vital. 
And then probably stage three, what would that look like? Is that more transitioning from your strength work into a little bit of running? Yeah, probably just prior to that year of prepping them for runs. So that would be running based drilling that is at a lower level of intensity as a straight line running would be. So that might be some uh, some sled sort of work. It yep. might be some wall drill sort of work. It's going to be able to practice landing safely with low intensity so yep. that the knee joint doesn't blow up. Then you can progress into your straight line running. Yeah. What advice do you have for any listeners who may have had an ACL injury before or people who want to reduce the risk of sustaining one? For those that have had one, I'd be, you know, looking back at whether or not your, your rehab was really diligent. And it, it might even be a few years down the track, but I'm still a firm believer that, you know, you, if you don't use it, you lose it basically. So if you're looking at getting back into sport in 2024 or maybe the summer of 23, I'd be doing a really good uh, prep for sport sort of program to reduce that risk if you have had one. If you haven't had one, touch wood never happens to you, but the the big thing there is just a really good global strength program. You know, there's so many different programs out there, but so many great professionals as well that, you know, want to be able to help you in that space. So the big things there are make sure you've got some good strength, lower body, good control for the, the trunk as well, and that you, you move well. So whether it's landing well, whether it's uh, on the court, I mean, or whether it's someone uh, playing footy on the field, being able to sidestep well. Obviously, there's no non-contact injuries uh, can be devastating. I'm sure we've all seen them yeah. one stage or another. But being able to get really strong in those sort of positionings and moving really well is vital. I want to briefly talk about the strength and conditioning side of things. We'll also incorporate physio aspect as well. But what inspired you to pursue a career in, in the strength and conditioning world as well as the physio world. But what do you find most rewarding about being a strength and conditioning coach? Originally started off physio, developed strong passion there from when I was really young, having a few injuries myself. And then as I sort of went through the, the physio world, saw the benefits of the strength and conditioning element and how the two can tie in together really closely. But I'm a big believer that strength and conditioning is, I don't like the word, but preventative. Mm-hmm. Minimization is probably a, a better phrase, but that can help to minimise the chances of injuries, those sorts of things as well, but also the performance elements. So that's something that helping to get people to a higher level of performance is something that's quite passionate about. Yep. So being able to tie those two together in terms of, you know, the rewarding side that I get out of it, like being able to obviously see people at whatever level it might be, get back to to their sport, whether it's post-injury or whether it's, you know, being able to just maximise their performance uh, on the on the court or on the, on the field is obviously really good. And being in that environment is unreal. Having played sport forever, uh, growing up, love being in that environment with good group of people and being able to uh, work towards a, a common common goal, I guess. Yeah. Let's talk technique. Can you explain to us how important it is to teach correct form and technique, especially from a young age, and how this can help prevent any major injuries in the years ahead? Yeah, the the technique element, particularly 
for those younger people out there is obviously really vital, but getting those foundational lifts. Mm -hmm. So, you know, squatting, hinge patterns, uh, being able to move well is really important to help how you go and translate that out onto the field. Obviously, the benefits of that is if you're playing contact sport in particular, hopefully put on a bit of size too to be able to help you out on the pitch. But being able to set those good foundations early on then translates into later on in life and yeah. hopefully being able to you know, develop a good passion for lifting too. I remember when I was playing, I think it was under maybe 16s, I hadn't really never lifted before, never touched any weights before. And my strength and conditioning coach at the time was the one and only Chris Jaffrey. Oh, you're a lucky man. Mate, I, I was doing deadlifts and I couldn't for the life of me hinge to save my life. I was working on my on my deadlift for probably like three sessions and Jaff was there the whole time. He even made me go home. He goes, go home, use your mum's broomstick, practice a deadlift, come back the next training session, still couldn't deadlift. And the one thing he said to me that helped me hinge properly was, pretend you're chucking your mate a brown eye and <laughs> <laughs> legit every time I deadlift now I'm like Jeff said pretend you're chucking your mate a brown eye so anyone listening who can't deadlift pretend you're chucking your mate a brown eye <laughs> which this might go hand in hand to what I just said but it, brown eye. no not the brown <laughs> eye <laughs> which which is the hardest exercise to teach proper technique Ooh. At a younger age, hinging does seem to be really challenging for people. They yeah. just can't quite comprehend the movement of you know, sit your bum back, keep your uh, knees slightly bent. So probably going to have to go with that one. Something maybe a little bit more left fielding than that younger population. It's interesting to see the kids that can and can't do a push-up. Yeah. Know, just being able to keep a neutral spine for whatever uh, that means exactly, but you know, some kids really struggle to just work through something like a push up, which you know surprises me considering it's a body weight exercise. Yeah, do that sort of anyway. And you can see, like, in the younger people or people who haven't learned to keep that neutral <clears throat> neutral spine, they got like that big dip in their fucking trunk, mm. which isn't ideal. Mm. Well, and then <laughs> that can translate, you know, out onto. Other things on the field as well, yeah. lower back issues yeah. and all that. Over time, of course, yeah. nothing in isolation generally does. But, yeah, it's just uh, one of those things that you know, should be able to use your body weight well at that age. In your opinion, how does an SNC coach's program integrate with a physio when it comes to injury prevention or rehab and how important is this to, to collaborate with mm -hmm. each other? Yeah, depending on the setup you've got, you know, if you're talking rep teams yeah. where you've got access to physio and Let's, let's say let's say team environment. Um, let's use the Illawarra Steelers mm -hmm. system for an example. Mm -hmm. How important is that? In short, very. Being able to have a good physio that understands the principles of strength and conditioning is vital because there should be a, a healthy push pull between the two. Yeah. Obviously, the SNC side of things is looking to improve performance. Physio side is probably a bit more of the view of minimising injury risk. So, therefore, you need that healthy push-pull to be able to get the best out of someone, but then the physio is going to be mindful of, okay, well, this person's got a history of multiple hamstring injuries. Is it really relevant that we maybe naughty for them the day before a game, for example? Yeah. Hopefully that's never happened. But, <laughs> uh, you know, 
the, then your injury risk is increased. So being able to have those open conversations between the two is really vital. The S&C side of things is obviously handling the programming from a conditioning point of view, from a gym strength-based point of view, and then the physio can have their little top-ups as well of correctives work or anything like that based on the individual and maybe their injury risk uh, as well as what you can see globally within that specific sport too. There's obviously different injuries across the sports. How hard is it to tailor a specific strength program to meet the individual's needs and limitations of their injury. Tell us a little bit about the the limitations or the the, the work that goes into into that programming. Again, we come back to what system you're you're talking about. If it's more that steeler system you're talking about, there's obviously a high number of kids within the group. I'm sure you know you with your experience can attest to the difficulties of making it somewhat individualized, but at the same time also doing it for the collective group. Yeah. So being able to you know, find the time and the resources to put together those sort of programs for a large cohort of, I think at one stage, when we had 45, Yeah, 50, I think we had, yeah, kids. 50 kids. So, it, was, it was crazy. Yeah, you know, and being able to program correctly for that uh, is, is going to be challenging versus maybe an individual sport or a sport where basketball, you know, you've got reduced numbers there. So being able to manage that's going to be a, a fair bit easier, I would imagine. Um, obviously, there's different challenges with basketball, multiple games within a week and those sorts of things. But, you know, from an individual level, you could probably get down to the nitty-gritty of a, each player a little bit more. Yeah. To finish off the pod, do you have any success stories of any professional athletes you have treated that have overcome their, their syndesmosis injury or ACL injury? and have made a successful return to their sport of choice? If so, can you briefly tell us a little bit about it? We had uh, some people, personal, I should say, shoulder injury-wise, and, you know, went through... Was this rugby league or...? Yeah, yeah, yeah went through a bit of a, a challenging time with some multiple injuries, but then being able to get back and see seeing him thrive was really, really rewarding, I guess. And, you know, obviously in that space... Rugby leaves their life, yep. identity. So being able to help get them back um, from a shoulder injury point of point of view, in terms of any specific ankle, long term ankle injuries, we're pretty fortunate not to have too many in that, uh, well, if any, really in that space, which is good. But being able to obviously get people back to where they wanted to get to the level, I think that's really really important and you can see over the last 12 months in particular there's people out there looking to return to performance not just return to play yeah because there is probably two different uh different mindsets for that and time frames that you can 100 lastly i know i texted you last night and i was like make sure you get your all-time nba starting five because i asked this question to every guest i have give me your all-time nba starting five well, Vaughn, I'm, I'm really out there, really different. So, you know, I've just gone with some really um, left field people. So, Michael Jordan. Michael uh, Jordan at the one. Yeah, exactly. So, really left field, not cliche at all. No, not at all. Don't, uh, even, don't even know his name, to be honest. <laughs> Never heard of the bloke. I did read his book uh, a little while ago, uh, a couple of years ago. It was fascinating. And, you know, seeing the docos and that. Yeah. Uh, you know, even half of that's true. It's pretty yeah. crazy. <laughs> what? Sort of athlete he was. 100%. Uh, look, Kobe Bryant. Yes. Uh, you know. The late, great Kobe. Exactly. Uh, again, 
not cliche, uh, LeBron James. Of course. He's out there, you know, he's big on his recovery from what you see and he's yeah. you know, 38 years old and still doing what he does. I've heard, he's, I've heard he spends millions of dollars. He's got like a recovery center in his house. Yeah. And he's got all the cryotherapy stuff and he's just spends millions of dollars on his body to, to you know, make his career as long as possible, which is crazy. And, you know, it's one of those things too, like it's your career, it's your livelihood. So we look at and go, yeah, that, that's crazy. But at the same time, you know, there's obviously a fair bit of money there. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, it is a career. Why not maximise it? Do what you can. That's right. You know, do all the simple things right. Yeah. Sleep. Yeah. Get in the gym. And, you know, cryo, as you said, just get it all done. It's yeah. Really important. Who's your poor man? So I think you know who it is. I think you might be wearing a shirt at the moment. Oh, <laughs> and his shoes. <laughs> Yes. Ah, uh, so fresh. How yeah, good. My man, Steph Curry. Uh, who, who would have guessed? Mate. Uh, the guy's a freak. Exactly. And, you know, obviously revolutionised the long-range uh, game as well. And then, well, you know my number five because, as you said, well, as I said, brother, I just wanted someone a little bit more uh, left field and my pronunciation was, was very good. <laughs> I had to help you with the pronunciation. <laughs> I'll let you the last name, but uh, Wilt. Wilt Chamberlain. You know, so I was having a look last night at, uh, you know, who were some of the great teams and the, I think the 71, 72 Lakers, you know, had the longest undefeated streak. And, yeah. You know, who was someone that was on that team. So I thought, why not go for someone that's uh, a few years ago? 100%. So, great team. May I wouldn't want to come come up against them. Exactly. Right. Not with my basketball skill to get smoked. <laughs> I've seen you on the court. <laughs> you see me in the gym fucking <laughs> jacking up threes. <laughs> Every time, we're <laughs> <Very> downtown. <laughs> All right, Richo, thanks for joining us today. Appreciate it. Thank you, mate. Hey, what up, guys? Thanks for listening to today's episode. Hey, if you want to keep in touch with everything the Amateur Athlete Podcast, make sure you follow us on Instagram at the Amateur Athlete Podcast. Or if you want to connect with the show, you can DM us on Instagram or you can email me at theamateurathletepodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to hit that like and subscribe button so you can keep up to date with everything Amateur Athlete. Thanks for listening and I'll catch you next time.